My next guest, Christy Hohen, is a mother, grandmother, public speaker, entrepreneur, and the founder of the Talk of the Table lifestyle brand. Christy is a bilateral, below-the-knee amputee, and embodies the idea that no matter the struggle, you can live with style, grace, and joy. It is my pleasure to introduce Christy Hohen. Welcome, everyone. My name is Rick Bonkowski, and this is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. Hey, Christy, how are you? Good to see you. Good morning, Rick. At least it's morning on the West Coast. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's where you are, right? Yeah, sunny California. What, What part of California? We're right outside LA. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah it's a, right that's above a, Malibu. That's a vast territory. Um, <laughs> I've only been there a couple of times in my life, and I was overwhelmed by how big of a place California is, um, but certainly beautiful. And you look very bright eyed today, as usual. <laughs> Thank you. So, very good to see you. And I appreciate you taking the time. I know you you have many plates that you are spinning uh, as as an amputee and as an entrepreneur and all the other things that you engage, um, which is certainly impressive given your your life story and and the many struggles that you have endured uh, as a um, uh, amputee, a, a bilateral amputee. Uh, no less. Um, you know, when I when I first started researching you, obviously the the Ellen the Ellen show piece comes up, and and I I, I think that's certainly a, a a beautiful piece of news and film, and let's call it a mini documentary. Yeah. And what I what I really found with you is there there's just so much more. Uh, to your story, and su- such a, a a long history of truly, um, you know, struggle and things that you've been through and things that you fought through that led you eventually to amputation. So right. very often, you know, when people meet an amputee they think, okay, well, you know, there was some cataclysmic event that occurred or some specific medical circumstance that occurred and, you know, you lost a limb. And very often, like yourself, there's so much more to the story. There's so much more. And someone who began a medical journey like yourself at 15 um, with chronic pain is it's 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 pretty remarkable stuff as far as all of the events that led up to your first amputation um right. you know getting getting diagnosed uh you know was was a big thing i mean it was a a, a really really difficult landscape for you to navigate especially at a very young age. And I want you to share 
with the audience, um, you know, as far as kicking off this interview with what those early years were like and how you eventually, you know, ended up with the diagnosis that you did. And I, I think it's best that you explain that <laughs> and give us some narrative as to what that experience was like for you. So I'll get, I'll, I'll let you do that. Well, thank you. Um, I think that, you know, adolescence is hard enough without everybody telling you that the pain and fatigue and, you know, various symptoms that you're experiencing are all in your head. And so, you know, going through from the age of 15 and not knowing what was wrong with me and simply thinking that this is what everyone feels like, I just can't handle it. And, and that was the message that I was given over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, were you a timid child? Were you a timid child? Were you shy? Were you were you <laughs> someone? Were you someone that a doctor could look at and say, you know, I mean, not to be patronizing, but you know, sweetie, I think it's just in your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you the kind of kid that sort of said, well, okay, maybe it is in my head. You know, yes and no, but I'll, I'll tell you what happens is anytime we tell ourselves or someone tells you enough times, there's going to be a point where you subscribe to it, you know, that you believe it and it becomes ingrained in you. And even though I was, I, I was a shy kid, but I was, I was like a closeted, um, um, actor or, you know, I wanted so much to be um, on stage and do those things, but I was terribly, terribly um, shy in that respect. So mm -hmm. it was a combination. And, and especially in the medical community, uh, we, we have a tendency to hold them on a pedestal and, and accept what they say as the gospel. And, you know, when we are vulnerable, because when you're sick, you are incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, that power of suggestion or whatever, um, it, it sent me on a spiral. You know, at 15, I was, um, you know, just feeling so bad most of the time. And then, you know, you start trying to compensate by maybe bad behaviors. I lived in an alcoholic family, so we had a, a variety mm -hmm. of... Um, of uh, chaos, you know, that was going on in the house. And so as a young girl, then, you know, we started experimenting with alcohol and, and, um, you know, other kinds of just, you know, missing curfew and, you know, doing those kind of things where sure. I became, instead of the straight A, um, you know, good girl, I was labeled then as lazy, as um, complaining, a hypochondriac, um, and then they could add to the list of, you know, she's drinking, she's staying out late, you know, she's doing these kind of behaviors. And I see now, you know, looking back of how I was simply acting out, you know, and and um, trying to get some kind of foothold at that time in my life um, that uh, seemed to escape me otherwise. And so, you know, li living through high school, um, you know, sick and not understanding why you felt so bad. Um, there was a point when I was 17, I didn't want to live anymore. 
um, the pain and the the chaos of of living in my home and you know all those things just came crashing down on me. And one night I I took a random bottle of pills from the medicine cabinet, and you know I woke that next morning not wanting to, but I did wake and. Um, Mm-hmm. you know, there was, there was more purpose for me still. And so I ended up, and nobody knew about that. Um, and wouldn't know if I hadn't, you know, mentioned it. And so, um, I never told my parents, but with all my yeah. acting out and all these things that were going on, I ended up spending the end of my junior year of high school in the psych ward. Um, but I was, I was lured into going to the hospital by my mom saying that they wanted to do tests on me to figure out what was wrong. I was so excited to have that done, not knowing that she actually meant for me to go into the psychiatric. Yeah, I, I know this. I know this part of your story and, yeah. you know, getting the the, you know, sort of the carpet pulled out from under you and someone sort of deceiving you that you trust right. into you know, being put in that situation, it, which probably felt very much like a betrayal. Oh, incredibly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, wanting to find the answers, and I'm assuming your symptoms were were persistent, however generalized enough that you could kind of attach it to a lot of different things. Right. And what I have personally found in the medical community, that when they can't you know, fit you into that specific box at that specific time. Right. That's when, I mean, let's face it, people practice medicine. Okay. They're not experts. They, they right. practice it. And very often you are the subject of that practice and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. And if it doesn't read right, you know, textbook definition kind of read, write. Mm-hmm. Very often they just say, well, I mean, for lack of a better word, maybe she's just nuts. You know, maybe she's crazy. Was. You know, let's and, send in the psychiatrist. Maybe we can get some answers. And, you know, that seemed to be the go-to. And, you know, knowing what I know now, at that point um, in time, 70%, 70% of scleroderma patients were undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And yeah. that's an incredible number. Now it, they've isolated um, proteins and, and done things like that, thanks to AIDS research and you know autoimmune disease research. Um, but at that time, it was such a low rate of diagnosis or mis- and a high misdiagnosis that um, the suicide rate and, and um, things substance abuse and things like that in that general community was really, really high. But being diagnosed with scleroderma um, for you, for your personal journey was, boy, oh boy, it took a long time. I mean, it took a long time for, for you to finally be able to go, oh man, I have something like, this is what's been plaguing me. Affecting every aspect. Yeah. You know, you, you, even though you have a dire diagnosis, it was a relief. At least I wasn't crazy, you know? And, and so initially they had told me I had osteoarthritis and a disease called scleroderma. 
and I didn't know what scleroderma was, and and that word meant nothing to me. I was so I'm sure arthritis. On, yeah, I was going to say arthritis you know? probably meant something to you. Yeah, because we've yeah. all heard that as children. Yeah, your grandma yeah. has arthritis. Grandma, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was a twenty-year, vibrant twenty-year-old, you know, sitting in front of this doctor and and getting that kind of diagnosis, and I had tears started running down my face, and he said to me. He, let's just say his bedside manner was non-existent. And so he, oh he looks at me and he said, you know, you're just going to have to learn to deal with this. <laughs> and so I was alone, Ouch. you know, in this office with him and, you know, through my tears drove home and not understanding, you know, even what he said. And thankfully things were written down for me because I, I didn't even have a grasp of it. And then began my journey figuring out, okay, what's next? But when you consider the fact that you had to be essentially coerced into going to a hospital under the false pretense that we're going to figure this out, we're going to run some tests, and then I've heard you describe this moment where you are I believe you describe it as in an elevator and you're going up to a particular floor. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, where, like, where are we going? Like what's happening right now? And then to be told, well, you're going to the psych ward. We're going to have you evaluated. I I mean, at a young age, I, I can't even imagine what goes through a young, a young woman's mind that was excuse me you're fine so that was you know that door opening and realizing where we were in the hospital you know we just kept going up floor after floor after floor and I was kind of questioning well where are we going you know I knew where the floors were for you know other um, patient rooms and I knew that the top floor of the hospital was a psychiatric ward. And so we, we get up to the top, the doors open to the left is the, the lockup and to the right is the open psychiatric wing. And they're, you know, kind of like, Oh, here we are. And I went, wait, 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 what are you doing? This mm-hmm. isn't what we talked about. And so I had a choice. My choice was, well, you can, you know, you are free to leave, but if you try to leave, we're putting you in the lockup. And so wow. that was my choice. And, um, you know, of course I felt incredibly betrayed by my mother. And, um, when I was taken to my room, I, I just sat there and cried and cried and cried and cried and begged for them to take me home. I had been so excited to be admitted to the hospital to do testing because I wanted to find out what was wrong with me. Um, and then it just completely evaporated into this um, deception. And um, I, you know, I was there for four weeks and um, it was very enlightening, <laughs> you know, and, and so it wasn't an, you know, a bad experience when, once I finally calmed down and everything, um, they did do medical tests on me and they did find out I had Raynaud's syndrome, which is a constriction of your blood vessels. But oh, otherwise yeah. they just basically, 
um, treated me for um, being a part of an alcoholic family, <laughs> which I don't yeah. think was what my parents were after. They were trying to find out what my problem was, yeah. not theirs. Oh. Yeah, your parents are like, well, we don't need to talk about that, do we? <laughs> <laughs> right. It was, it was the irony was not lost. <laughs> exactly. You're, they're like, oh no, this is becoming an exercise and them whoa, figuring whoa, whoa, out wait, like, wait. Yeah, yeah, no, no, how no, messed no, up our family her. is. <laughs> it was, like, it was a little bit of a rude like, awakening. <laughs> you're like, mom and dad, I have to tell them everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I get to talk about you guys. Yay. <laughs> so it did end up, you know, oh, um, my gosh. becoming, something better, you know, than I had initially um, managed to, you know, have in my mind of, of what, what this whole scenario was going to look like, because I wasn't crazy, you know, and, and I was dealing with some sort of something, even though we didn't diagnose it coming out, at least mm -hmm. I had one answer. I have brain odds and I have a crazy family. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, exactly. And when you were going through that, you know, as a teen and having all those symptoms, mm -hmm. would would that be something that you could find any relief from? I mean, was it something that you you did develop strategies to to tolerate? Um, were there certain activities that you would say, okay, yeah. this tends to to uh, you know create a spike? Or, right. you know, if I do this other thing, you know, I, I'm having a better day today. I mean, were you even as a young adult, like modifying your behaviors yeah. so that you could, I had to. you know, I had yeah. to, yeah, I had, um, I was an avid water skier. Of course that's seasonal, but we had a lake house and, um, mm -hmm. I had to give up water skiing. I couldn't hold on to the rope and, mm -hmm. um, then I started be, uh, getting at, let's see, the age of um, 20, I developed ulcerations on my ankle. And so then I, I couldn't even put on a ski. And so during the time between 15 and probably 20, until I developed the ulcerations, I, I was just grinning and bearing it. You know, when I'd water ski and you just peel your hands off the rope because the holding on to it so tightly would hurt, you know, the arthritis and, sure. you know, just kind of doing things like that. Now I slept a lot. Okay. What teen doesn't sleep a lot, I think. Uh, and, and that's why my parents, I think believed, you know, I was just a lazy teenager and it wasn't that it was literally just my body saying, you need rest, you know, you need to be down. And I, I, yeah. You probably have heard of the spoon theory, you know, and I don't know why they use spoons, but basically what it is, is every day people with chronic illness, you know, you're given so many spoons and how many spoons you use up is how much energy you have during the day. And sometimes you, you know, maybe even your spoons are supposed to last you all week. And if you use them up in one day, then you don't have any for the rest of the week. And and that's how I had to... Yeah start adapting, knowing how much effort I could needed to put into something. And then I'd have to let some other stuff go. But so much of chronic pain, mm. because I know, you know, plenty of people that struggle with some form of chronic pain. Mm. 
this becomes somewhat um, mystifying for the medical community at times. And it's very easy to disregard someone who is managing chronic pain because it doesn't necessarily have a specific label or a specific face. And I know people who do suffer in silence with chronic pain. And they have to build their entire lives around that issue Absolutely. and miss out on so much mm. and, you know, never truly engage certain things, certain activities, certain relationships, certain people, because right. you just, I can't do it. I just cannot well, do pain, it. Chronic pain and pain in general, but chronic pain in particular is something that dictates everything. It dictates when you smile, when you sleep, when you laugh, when you cry, when you eat, you know, all of those things. And dealing with chronic pain to the point where I can tell you without question that from the age of 15 until probably five years ago, there was not one day of my life that I didn't have pain. And it would vary from okay, you can take a Tylenol to, I can't handle it. And the narcotics aren't even helping, you know, everything in between. And so it's kind of crazy when you look back and you go, wow, you know, here I am 58. Um, I, my pain is managed a lot better now because I do yoga and meditation and, and Mm -hmm. things like that. And so realizing how many years, you know, have been lost, you know, because of pain, we're talking about 40 years of your life, you know, living in chronic pain. Um, it's pretty incredible. And you're, you know, I'm definitely not the only one. And so that was a catalyst in me choosing, um, to have my first amputation. Was after yeah, I wanted to, years. I wanted to lead, I wanted to lead up to that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, because, someone who, who, you know, looks at you at face value and says, okay, you know, double amputee, um, you lost, which, which was the first leg to go below the knee? My left. Your left. left. Mm -hmm. And those circumstances stemmed around, um, an infection. What was exactly the reason why you ended up losing your left leg below the knee? Right. So at 20, I developed the first ulceration on my ankle and it, we were treating it for over a year as a brown spider bite, thinking that I got it at the lake house. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So we thought that the spider bite was from the lake house. And so they were treating me as they do all spider bites for over a year And I had changed doctors and she was an internal medicine doctor and she pointed down to my ankle and she said, what is that? And I said, oh, I've got a spider bite. She said, let me take a look at it. And she looked at it and said, that's not a spider bite. That is an ulceration caused by the scleroderma. And that was the first I realized, you know, that that was um, happening. And, you know, this was back circa 
gosh, <laughs> how old am I? I'm trying to think of what year this would have been, like 1986, something like that. I believe 80, maybe 84. 84. Scleroderma is, um, it's a complex disease. Um, can you, complex. can you, before we circle back to the first mm -hmm. amputation, I think it's important for the audience to get a little train up on what scleroderma is scleroderma because is. super serious stuff. And I yeah. think um, they would benefit from your take because it's something that has been a persistent part of your life. Right, right. And being able to advocate for scleroderma patients is really important to me because Absolutely. It, it can be a death sentence. For many people and and it was for me and so um i had or have the systemic disease and and that means it not only affects my skin but my internal organs scleroderma is an overproduction of collagen within your system and basically it starts attacking your organs and your skin and um causing all sorts of little havoc and for me it had already at diagnosis um, at 20 had affected my heart, my lungs, esophagus, minimally um, affecting my kidneys. And I was already showing signs in my face. This part of my face had changed so much and my smile became even toothier, you know, and that kind of thing. And then my hands, of course, the, the arthritis is something that, or osteoarthritis, uh, goes hand in hand with scleroderma, as does lung disease. And so I developed pulmonary fibrosis and um, something called bronchiectasis, which is a fun little side <laughs> disease wow. that uh, causes little pockets of fluid in your lungs. And then um, my esophagus was very heavily uh, affected and I had uh, a hiatal hernia um, chronic acid reflux to the point of a bleeding um, esophagus. And I had to have my esophagus dilated uh, twice just so that I could swallow any kind of food. And so there were, you know, thing after thing, I developed a, um, some problems with my heart with a, a prolapse and, you know, just arrhythmia and blah, 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 blah. So it seemed like at every stage, there was like a new little fun thing to yeah, deal with. It seemed and like it was touching touching just about everything that it could. Yeah. And at that time, um, you know, when I was 20, they really didn't believe I would live past 26. Um, and as far as it had progressed already and everything, it, it, it didn't look likely. Um, I had a, I had my son when I was 22 and a year later, he actually saved my life uh, during the night. We had, I had been on my feet the entire day, which I knew better, but it was Mother's Day and it was an art fair and, you know, just something really fun to do. And I pushed myself past my limit and yeah, you ended up. I'm guessing, I'm yeah. guessing you walked around all day. All day all day and it yep. was hot out and you know the whole thing but i was happy and i i did it well during the night he woke up for his pacifier and i got up went over to his bed to give him his pacifier and got back into bed as i'd done a million other times and 
I get in bed and I think, wow, everything feels a little bit wet. And then you're gonna, I, you're gonna, I you're about to tell me you were, yeah, you're about to tell me you were yeah. bleeding. Yeah. I lifted back the covers and in the moonlight, my white sheets were black and I couldn't figure out what was happening. I flipped on the light and I was in a bloodbath. It had burst through a vessel in my foot and everywhere I walked to my son's crib, I was spraying blood everywhere. And if he had not woken, I would never have woken. Yeah, you and would have bled out. You know, just, yeah, I would have bled out. No pain, nothing. And, you know, thankfully, uh, we were living with my parents at the time. And I was able to get them up and get me to the emergency room where they could get a pressure bandage on it and, and get it um, stopped. But the pain of having that kind of pressure on it, because these types of ulcerations are all nerve. And um, no matter how much narcotics they gave me, it wasn't touching the pain. And so I, I cried and um, cried and cried for probably, well, we got home from the hospital around 3 a.m. And around 7, 7.30 in the morning, my mom called the hospital because she's crying by this point because I am sobbing in pain and I can't stop. And um, anyway, they ended up changing um, or, or telling, I'm sorry, they ended up telling me I could go ahead and remove my bandages and then I would you know, hopefully have stopped bleeding. So I did. And um, luckily, save one other time, um, that never happened again. And so we ended up um, just being super careful. You know, my mom would always say to me, you need to get off your foot, you need to get off your foot. And yeah. the thing is, what kind of life can you have, you know, with your foot elevated all the time? And that was the only way for me to be able to have any kind of relief and to keep my foot from opening again. Because once right. it would heal, if I was on my feet at all, it would end up opening up again. Um, I tried pressure socks. I tried, you know, different ointments and therapies and, and all the things that we could do. Uh, but it just wasn't going to help if I wanted to have a normal life. And so that's when I started after I'd had uh, three, um, I had three skin grafts and I had multiple debridements. I had bone infections and hyperbaric treatments and blah, 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 you know, 12 years, 12 years of fighting it. Yeah. And I said, no more, that's it. I'm done. Unless you can offer me something permanent then I am more interested in um, having the foot amputated. And but so don't you think so me. much of uh, when you're in, when you're put in that position where it's almost voluntary, <laughs> don't you think that's when you do that sort of life inventory and say, this is really just about quality of life at this point. Quality of life. It was like, all about quality of life and yeah. what, you know, societal, you know, things, um, influences didn't really, um, even matter to me at all. I had so many doctors saying, Oh, you're too young. I was 32 years old. I'd spent 12 years fighting this. You're too young. Yeah. You're too young. 
I go, what, am I too young to have my life back? I don't think so. You know, doing my passions of cooking and, and designing and doing these things were so far out of my, my reach for so many years that I, I just wanted it back again. I wanted me back. Yeah. Yeah, and making making the decision to do that first amputation, um, what was your, I mean, what was that like? I mean, what was that initial reaction to that new yeah. uh, sort of lifestyle, that new, you know, I mean, becoming an amputee, I don't think it's ever truly what any of us expect because right. it's not, it's not something... And, you know, so much of, of my work with this podcast is about the normalization of this mm-hmm. kind of community, this kind of lifestyle, removing those stigmas about right. uh, limb loss or limb difference, and yeah. really showcasing stories of people like yourself that managed to traverse the, you know, I guess you'd call it the... Um, tragedy of what amputation is and Mm -hmm. to go on to live their best life in, in career, in love, in Mm -hmm. all of the things that bring us joy and happiness. And because you're someone that does it with such grace, um, I think your, your, your story is so important in that regard. So you have that first amp and then Mm -hmm. where does that kind of leave you? I mean, where, where, where does that leave well, your outlook on life? It, <laughs> so going up to it was kind of um, terrifying because what happened was I had a nurse who was coming in and helping me change bandages and, and everything. And we were coming up to the date. Now, anytime my foot healed, it would heal very rapidly. You know, you're a hundred percent off your feet. You're, um, you know, doing all this cares and everything, bandage changes and whatnot. And so once it starts healing, it goes really fast. And the week, uh, two weeks before the scheduled surgery, it really started healing fast. And the only ones that knew were my nurse and my doctor and myself. Probably thought you were making a mistake. (laughs) Well, I needed to make sure this is the right time. You know, yeah. and you're you're kind of going, okay, universe, is this the right thing? You know, what what am I supposed to be doing? Is this a sign that maybe right now isn't okay? Mm-hmm. And I had a I had a very good friend who had been killed in a sailplane accident a few years prior, and he was a an orthopedic surgeon, and their family, um, you know, were like family to me, and the nurse who was helping me, she had actually worked for him in the, in the surgery room. And she had said to me, well, what would he have said? What would he tell you? You know, and all the years that we, you know, that I knew him, we had never discussed what, what the future held for my foot, you know, did, could I expect it to be amputated or anything like that? We had never discussed it. And I was sad about that. You know, of course, facing this, you know, that we had never talked about it. So she had, Mary had said, you know, uh, boy, we wish, you know, Chuck had talked to you about this. Well, I was having dinner with his wife a few days before the surgery. And I went over there and I hadn't mentioned to her how fast it was healing or anything. I needed that to be 
um, my choice and nobody else's. And I didn't want to worry anyone. And so we sat down to dinner and she said, oh, I just hate this for you, she said. But you know what? Chuck said someday this would happen. Mm. And it was like, okay, there we go. <laughs> I got my sign. You know, this is the right thing. And this is, you know, he did mention it. He just didn't mention it to me. Right. And so I got back to the house and called um, Mary, my nurse, and, and said, Mary, I got my answer. And so I was able to move forward from there with absolute certainty that it was the right thing to do. Um, unfortunately, in the hospital, I acquired MRSA and um, it made it so it wasn't quite as straightforward as we had um, really planned on. And I ended up with um, two subsequent uh, surgeries and emergency surgeries and um, a lot, a lot of pain and a lot of um, terrible antibiotics and um you know, 12 weeks of, of misery. And of course, you know, rethinking my entire life in the process, you know, what have I done? Well, but yeah, because you're so much of all these decisions that you're making in the interest mm -hmm. of quality of life, forging ahead, putting on that brave face and, and wanting mm -hmm. to um, heal and wanting to right. get your life back and to be continually dealt another bad hand is um I never saw it that way though I I think how did, you know well, describe how you yeah describe it like how yeah. did you see that in terms of those setbacks well so I'm not a fatalist and and so I I have a, a very wonderful tendency to be looking for the brighter side and I knew I was going to make it through this I knew that there was, you know, going to be a better day on the other side. And I needed just to put myself and my mindset into getting well again and then making the best of it, you know, once I was well. And so that's how I forged through. It was um, heartbreaking, you know, at times, but it was um, something that I, I just knew it was going to be okay. I just needed to get through it. And so I did, and, you know, the 12, 14 weeks, weeks on vancomycin and two surgeries more. And I finally then was out of the hospital again and um, back to learning to walk on a prosthetic. And so as a single mother, um, I, my son was then nine. Yeah. Uh, my focus was on being the best that I could for him. And making him proud, you know, that. So we, I, I, I kept volunteering at school. I kept doing all the things, you know, with our church and, and with our friends and keeping busy and doing all those things and just pushing myself forward to learn to walk again. And eventually then without crutches or a walker. And I, I just didn't look back. Yeah. And that kind of resiliency, I think, is where the fascination comes from especially mm -hmm. people that, you know, write to me, you know, about the podcast and about the stories. And, you know, that is something that I think we have to recognize is pretty extraordinary about human beings and people that don't go to that 
defeated kind of space. They just continue to forge ahead, forge ahead, forge ahead. And, you know, in my own personal experience, there had always been um, setback, you know, healing, forward progress, setback, healing, forward progress. And absolutely very, very much of my life over like a four or five year period had become sort of that cycle of something would happen. There'd be some kind of major surgery. Then there was rehabilitation. And then there was smooth sailing only until I got to the next challenge. And then it just would repeat. And I think we all have different sources of strength and inspiration. I'm I'm going to assume that you know your son was probably a big part of that. In oh, absolutely, yeah, giving yeah. you that reason to to keep mm-hmm. going. Um, yeah. I think we all, hopefully, we all on some level feel responsible to something that is inspiring us to stay in the game and keep going. And, you know, you, you know, having, uh, uh, another child and then losing your other leg, um, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. Well, I had actually two more children, two more children months apart. Okay. Yeah. And so it was after the birth of my daughter, who was my last child, that my other leg just started on the same path and, you know, ulcerations. And I went, no, 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 no. I am not going to lose 12 years again, you know, with facing the same exact thing, the same scenario of, of pain and knowing that, again, there was nothing that we could permanently do. There are a lot of temporary fixes for these types of ulcerations, but ultimately just staying off your feet and all the time is the only way to keep them from happening. Right. So that is no quality of life, of course. And that was when I just went into it. Um, We were living in Germany at the time. So, um, you know, I was faced with a completely different set of, of circumstances with regard to the hospital, but I had experience because I had birthed two children there. And so I knew that, you know, the system was really good. And then there was a a hospital there that was just for amputation medicine. And so that was reassuring to know that, you know, everything um, was specialized. And so all the doctors and all the prosthetists and therapists and everybody worked together as a team. So it made it for me um, a lot more fluid and, and, you know, you have a completely different level of understanding in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And the rehabilitation and everything was so much more comprehensive. So I, I got, I, I believe, the, the best care that I possibly could have gotten anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, to the point of even the therapy, including Tai Chi and uh, equestrian therapy and archery and cooking and art and, you know, just on and on. So it made it kind of a mind, body, spirit. And I think, you know, throughout all of this, I think that's something we, we are lacking here is in when people are going through 
this kind of trauma, we have to not only look at the physicality part and making sure, you know, infection and da, 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 but how are you feeling and, and getting you through psychologically and, and showing yourself that you are still you, you still have these, you know, passions to do and, and, um, you know, you have your family and, and your friends and all this that make your life rich. And so I think we have a tendency to encapsulate that kind of, you know, well, she's now disabled. So she's not able to do A, B, and C, you know, and, and we, we impose some of that on ourselves, but society definitely imposes a lot of that on us. Do you feel like some of that, what you're speaking of, you know, these, these <laughs> kind of generalizations about people mm-hmm. who either are amputee or let's just say they're, you know, they're in a wheelchair, um, mm-hmm. which you've spent, you know, time in a wheelchair. Do you feel like so much of your entrepreneurial spirit, okay, building, you know, what mm-hmm. I consider to be very much a lifestyle brand, um, comes from that place of, you know, mind, body, spirit, you know, um, sort of encapsulating what I, when I look at someone like yourself and I look at, you know, your talk of the table series and everything you're doing in that space, it's, it's very much a lifestyle. I mean, it's really not a specific discipline. It's, it is to a degree. I mean, there's, there's very much toolbox items that you're presenting, However, mm-hmm. it's it's very much a way to live your life. And can you expand on that when you talk about, you know, when you see yourself in that entrepreneurial space? Like, what is that all about? What, what would you want someone to know about you in that regard? So I, I think for me, the drive has always been there. And I come from an entrepreneurial family. So, you know, kind of a natural tendency toward that and, and my creativity and all that. So it was kind of um, fun to discover this kind of lifestyle, as you say, as I got older and more experienced, you know, cooking has always been an integral part of our family, um, back to my grandparents and, and they were hobby cooks and we we just kind of grew up eating gourmet foods and, you know, and um, enjoying that kind of preparation and and creativity and all that. So it seemed like a natural kind of progression. But when we lived in Germany, then I discovered this raclette um, that they were doing and it's eating um, food that you cook at the table. So I wanted to take that mixed with, I had children, smaller children at the time, I wanted to have a fun time at, at dinner, and I also wanted them to learn to cook. So it's part of my kind of entertaining, my teacher, my mothering, you know, kind of all those hats that you wear, and it, they all came together. So I kind of laugh sometimes. I call myself the footless Martha. And so, you know, creativity and entertaining and all that is something that's always been just who I am. My next door neighbor, uh, before I lost my leg or anything, had used to call me Martha all the time. 
So <laughs> it was kind of well, just, not um, to, yeah, not to natural, <laughs> not to seem uh, like I'm getting in line, but I thought the same thing when I <laughs> when I when I first discovered you, and I, I'm sure it was through either a you know a blog or <clears throat> a uh, social media post, and I thought, hmm, I'm like, here's a really kind of bright eyed, full of energy amputee. What's she all about? <laughs> and then I did a deeper dive and found that you were really doing some extraordinary things in this space. And you bring such an interesting, you know, perspective to the community in that that promotion of family. You know, I've I've watched, you know, many of the the pieces you've done with your daughter and yeah. they're they're wonderful. I mean, they're it's it's and it's not just necessarily the educational piece is very beneficial but there's very much a um vibration you know that comes from yeah. what you do and it's very yeah. it's very uplifting and you know it's it's almost in a sense if i could describe it it's like oh yeah and by the way she's an amputee you know Right. And and that's what, you know, I think that's where we all need to take a, a little moment to shift our focus. Um, that's something I talk about extensively. And it is that, you know, you don't just come out of the hospital and you are now another species. Right. You know, I, you are you are first still uh, a human being and a, a mother and a, there isn't and a, a zoo, wife there isn't a zoo a, for us is that what you're saying where we where we all well, go you and... know it's it's kind of funny how you know all of a sudden we box ourselves and of course people love labels right yeah right and so that was you know so my interestingly is um, my boyfriend he's in um, TV production and digital media and everything and so. We have decided uh, we're taking this to a whole new level here pretty quick. We're working on right now um, converting one of our rooms. So we have a, quite a large room here in the house that's going to be our television studio. Awesome. And so we're going to go ahead and start filming. It's, it's, it'll be a lifestyle kind of show and, and you know, it's fun and, and uh, witty. And, it, you know, I just happen to be an amputee. Um, there's so many labels, you know, you can say I'm a scleroderma survivor. I'm, uh, you know, a lung cancer survivor. You know, there's all these things that I am, but I'm first and foremost me. And, you know, that's the part that I, I think we can have some fun with, you know, just getting out there and letting people know it's not, uh, that doesn't dictate my life, you know, and, and it doesn't limit me. And it doesn't limit any of us right. in what we can be and who we can be. It's it's right in between our ears, you know, and and definitely not our limbs. Absolutely, and you know the the piece you did, you know, for Ellen, um, really mm -hmm. really wonderful stuff, and certainly um, addressing you know uh, the amputee journey, but I think also yeah. really tapped into what you're describing as you, you know, you as a human, yeah. you as a person, you as yeah. a, what I consider to be a, a just extraordinary energy and something, <laughs> something that uh, I want to be able to tap into and say, you know, I, I, I kind of want to be part of this club. And when I say the club, 
I mean, the people that do it well, that do it with grace. You know? Honestly, I'll tell you what club it is. It's the happy club. <laughs> right. And when I started on it, it is, it's the happy club. And I, I started on a very purposeful journey several years back and getting out of a bad marriage and back into finding out, you know, who are you and, and my soul, my spirit and letting it, letting it soar and, and getting rid of this kind of um, anxiety and things that I imposed on myself because I didn't think I was enough. And, you know, once I bridged that, and once I, you know, got into meditation, got into all this woo-woo-y stuff, right? Yeah. My happiness quotient just soared. And in the process, I realized I had a unique opportunity, and that is to be able to be an ambassador, be an ambassador for people who survive scleroderma, who survive lung cancer, who happens to be an amputee, you know, all of these little hats, if you will, mm -hmm. um, give me an opportunity, a very unique opportunity. But then I realized how big of an opportunity we all have, you know, in our lives, regardless if we have a disability, to get out and smile and, and be that person who shows up and doesn't make an excuse not to be somewhere Absolutely. or, you know what I mean? It's, it's showing up and, and getting out and being your best every day. Yeah. And, and it's not to say you don't have a few days now and then that, you know, you're just well, of course. over it. Right. Yeah, Of course. I mean, but, you're right. Because I always yeah. talk about removing the dark energy from my life, surrounding myself yeah. with um, mm -hmm. the kind of people that bring out the best in me. And the kind Absolutely. of people that I want to share energy with, and we can yeah. lift each other up through that, which is so wonderful. And I, I always say, you know, I just want to live well. I want to live high. I want to live right. in a way right. that others say, "Huh, what, what's going on over there?" I want some. Of I that. want some of that. <laughs> Right? I want some of that. I, I think it's easy. <laughs> I think it's easy sometimes for people to get into. A, kind of a mindset of, well, she's just a little too chipper, you know, <laughs> or that kind of thing. And it, it's just their own negativity and negative energy that's, you know, dictating their life for them. Right. And, you know, that's something that the more you practice it, um, the easier it is. And, and you'll wake up one day and realize how incredibly happy you are. Mm -hmm. And then the greatest part about it is uh, you start attracting light, you know, and that's kind of the laws of the universe, right? Light attracts light, dark attracts dark. And I realized how throughout my life, you know, to tie this all in together is how the darkness of where I was living and, 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 the, and the mindset and everything of how it just brought on more problems and more problems and more problems. And once I shifted that, and once I really started focusing on my own energy and my own inner light and all those things, I started attracting it and the opportunities opened up and the friendships and the, you know, being here on this podcast and, you know, doing all the, the Ellen piece. And I did a, a piece for T-Mobile and it, it's just all these opportunities just started pouring in and, I've been so incredibly thankful for that. And 
relationships and my boyfriend mm -hmm. and, you know, all these things are just such incredible, positive things that we wake up every day so thankful, you know, for the day, for the opportunity. And you're right. we're just going to run with no, it. No, you're right. It's, it's And I find the same thing. It's It's been extraordinary to me over the last, you know, I would say four or five years, how much my own experience has changed um, in that breaking those cycles, understanding the power that I have yeah. as a human yes. being and being able yeah. to not only visualize, but direct my life in a, you know, in a way that mm -hmm. I'm writing this story, no one else. And Absolutely. suddenly, yeah. suddenly, like you're saying, and I, I couldn't agree more, when when all of that light starts to occur, all the things that just naturally start coming to you, you're not even chasing those dreams anymore because everything is- No, you have it out there. It's just happening. It's just happening. Yeah. And, you know, I feel so fortunate as an amputee myself that I get to engage- people that I admire and that I can share energy with and that I can take something yeah. away from this. And, you know, I, I've, I've talked to a few people and, and, you know, uh, you know, able-bodied people, non-amputees, whatever you want to call them, two-legged freaks. Um, I talk to people <laughs> and they'll, they'll say, well, what's, what's the thing, you know, you you love most about it. And, I say you'd find this hard to believe, but the the whole experience is so incredibly self-serving. Um, I actually feel like I do it for me. I do it because yeah. I love it. And it's been just an awesome experience to meet people like yourself, to be able to one day see something you you've posted online, you know, tap into that energy and go wow, it'd be really cool if I was able to talk to Christy sometime. And then, <laughs> and then to think literally in, in a blink of an eye, you're here. And now we're, I'm here. and now we're talking. <laughs> and yeah, it's, and, and those kind of opportunities, you know, they just open up in so many different ways when you open your heart and you allow all of it to happen. And, and that's where I felt like that's the key is to open your heart to all the possibilities and, and, and not limit yourself with, I can do, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, we can look in ourselves and around us and go, what can I do? Right. And let's just start moving in that direction. And once you start that motion, then everything else kind of comes along with it and opening your heart, getting up every morning, being grateful, you know, just maintaining that positivity. Does that mean every day I feel great? No. You know, there's days where, you know, I, I had a little surgery and I had, you know, these little things that have happened, but you just yeah. go, okay, that was something that happened. It doesn't define me. It's not going to change my course. Right. And I'm going to keep going. Yeah. I think uh, it's a great way to, to wrap up the interview. You know, when you look at the, the balance sheet of your life and there's so much positive, when something, yeah. you know, happens to show up that's even remotely negative, you're kind of like, eh, whatever. You know, we have so much going right now. 
that I'm not really even thinking about that. It's not all consuming because there's so much positive energy that's propelling me forward. Where where is the best, where would you say is the best place to follow you? And what's the website address for Talk of the Table? It's tablegrilling.com. Tablegrilling.com. And hold um, hang on. <coughs> Let me try that again. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> so the web address is tablegrilling.com, and that'll take you to talk of the table company.com. Got it. We will be starting with brand new everything uh, after a, probably mid-October. Okay. We're getting the studio all ready now and going to start filming. We're leaving for Europe uh, next week. So we're hopefully getting a little bit of footage in while we're over in Europe. Awesome. And um, Dan, the magic editor, yeah, we'll get it all in. And one thing I just wanted to tap back into was talking about the journey and in everything that we've all gone through, I think one of the single most important things that I found was understanding how everything I've gone through in my past is related to what happens in my future and being grateful for it and not looking back with regret or sadness or any of that, wishing it away. Because when we wish any of that away, we wish away the people then the, the things that we love the most. And so we have to grasp onto that and, and just take it with us. That That is is so wise and so beneficial. And that is something I will take with me today. And remember, um, you know, Christy Hohen, it is a pleasure to meet you. I am so happy that you were able to take the time. And um, Thank you, I will be following, of course. And look forward to all of these new and exciting endeavors that you are embarking on. And of course, I I wish you all the best. Um, Thanks again. Uh, That's going to wrap it up for us. My name is Rick Bonkowski. This is the Amped Up to 11 podcast. And I just want to wish everyone health and happiness. And we will see you next time. 